Firstly, I want to welcome everyone again to this final of our race talks. Uh, raise your hand if this is the first race talk you've ever been to before. Don't be bashful about it. Good. Really, really glad you are here. Um, I'm glad to all the rest of you as well for having devoted any amount of time to being here and attending to these matters together. Um, by so doing, you are loving your neighbors. And if you're a Christian, you're contributing to um, the witness of the church, which is ultimately what we're aiming at in Race Talks. Um, I want to mention that, if this hasn't already been mentioned, that when we come back from break, we're going to be restarting our series called Apocalypse, which is a study of the book of Revelation. Um, it feels like a million years ago that we were doing that, um, and we're going to start doing it again until the end of the school year. Um, if you've never been to like a regular well before, it still is on Tuesdays at 7, and uh, when you come for the first time, it will be somewhat recognizable. It's slightly different than this format, um, but you should come check it out um, and hang out with us more on Tuesdays after this next quarter starts. So tonight, our speaker is Kalila. Uh, Kersey? Yeah. You're, I still have your old last name in my phone, so sorry about that, Chase. Um, <clears throat> and uh, she refused to give me like a, a formal blurb. Um, to be fair, I asked for it pretty late in the day today. Um, so I'm going to say some things from the cuff about her, some of which were randomly texted to me by uh, friends of hers. Uh, Kalila may or may not have attended Louisiana Tech University at some point and may or may not have graduated from there at some point. As a, was it art or graphic design major? But that's not necessarily important. I'm just saying it's a thing about her. She's an artist. Is that fair to say? Uh, she currently works at Fine Line Supply Co. Um, perhaps more excitingly, although that's great too. Fine Line Supply is great. Um, she was an intern here at the Wesley Foundation for two years. And I will just attest to the fact that she was the kind of intern who sets the, bar, the benchmark for, for future interns. She's the kind of person who other interns aspire to be like and whose example helps us to, to, to sort of pass on to future generations an imagination about what exactly it is that we're pursuing um, in the internship program uh, in the way that she's, she pursues folks. Um, what was some of the stuff that I got texted about you? You have a cat named Izzy who is large and fluffy. Um, welcome, baby. And, and other person, mom. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Uh, what was the other thing? Anything else? Am I missing stuff from text? No? Yes? Okay, cool. Khalila, anything else that people need to know about you? Chase is her husband, who, who helped serve communion this evening and unceremoniously dropped the body of Christ on the ground. <clears throat> but he has other strengths. Um, Khalila, I'm really grateful that you're doing this tonight. Um, so let's welcome her. soft speaker so can you all hear me no oh darn it okay I'll try to project as well um, so when I got asked to speak here tonight I was really honored and excited I still am um, but the more I wrote this talk the more worried I became about saying just the right thing to make people a little more open a little softer a little more compassionate and a lot less racist and the first draft of this was me just trying to justify myself, um, hoping that I could say something that would make me more trustworthy, more likable, more worth listening to. But there's this verse in John 
when the Pharisees are being the Pharisees and they're asking him who he is and he never actually tells them his name. Instead he says, I am a voice in the desert crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. And I think that's who I am or that's who I'm trying to be at least. And I hope by the end of this talk that you feel equipped to say the same. So here are some baseline assumptions that I'm making about all of you. Number one, you really do love the Lord and you're interested in loving all of his people as he's called us to do. Number two, you're open to being educated, rebuked, convicted, encouraged, loved and held by the body of Christ. And number three, you care about the sanctity of the church. And well, if any of those things are untrue, then I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you probably won't like this talk very much. So now I'm going to read a psalm because I have you all hostage and I like it a lot. It's probably one of my favorites and I just wanna share it with you. This is Psalm 138. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with all my heart for you have heard the words of my mouth. In the presence of the angels, I will sing your praise. I will worship at your holy temple and give thanks to your name because of your kindness and your truth. For you have made great above all things your name and your promise. When I called, you answered me. You built up strength within me. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks to you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. And they shall sing the ways of the Lord. Great is the glory of the Lord. The Lord is exalted, yet the lowly he sees, and the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk amid distress, you preserve me. Against the anger of my enemies, you raise your hand. Your right hand saves me. The Lord will complete what he has done for me. Your kindness, O Lord, endures forever. Forsake not the work of your hands. Okay, so the structure of this talk will be in three parts. And if you're taking notes, um, you can write down these three big headings. So the first one is the importance of naming sin. Um, are the importance of naming racism as sin. Repentance as an occasion for joy. And the call to risk our lives. So one of the most prevalent and unhelpful practices I've seen in conversations concerning racism is the unwillingness and even the fear to name certain kinds of thoughts, um, speeches, actions, and certain kinds of patterns as racist. Um, and I've seen this in different ways with multiple people, and I can't help but think of this one time that Chase and I were visiting with this couple in our family. And the wife was telling a story about how she was traveling alone, and at some point she had to stop at this gas station. Um, so she does, she stops, and she goes in, and there are a bunch of Hispanic men hanging out at the gas station. This is how she tells the story. And in just like a fit of anxiety, and worry, she runs out of the gas station, she gets in her car, and she calls her husband. Um, and then, she made my job super easy. She looks me dead in my face and she says, now is that racist? And I said, yes, absolutely, 100%. Um, and then her husband tried to like come to her defense and give her some kind of like justification by saying that she was like bullied in high school by these little Hispanic girls, and so, you know, that's the reason, but she's not really racist. But there's no defense or justification for that kind of mentality. 
And what she doesn't understand, the other thing that's at play here, is the fact that having those kinds of racist thoughts towards people of color have gotten them murdered or jailed. Emmett Till and Carolyn Bryant is an example of this, where she fabricated an entire story about how Till, 14 years old at the time, made inappropriate advances toward her. A lie, she later confessed, decades after Emmett Till was brutally beaten and hanged. There are other stories of young black men being accused of sexual assault with little to no evidence and being jailed anyway, based only on the color of their skin and the racism in the hearts of the people in authority. The Central Park Five, a group of five young boys between the ages of 14 and 16 years old, accused of raping and beating a young woman. All of these people innocent. And you may be tempted to think that that's just them. That's just those stories. It isn't. Those are racially oppressive systems and generational sin. Sometimes it doesn't matter whether or not the intentions are malicious or whether you mean it or not, whether you think that it's harmful or not, when the perceptions of people of color are the same. That's a dangerous mentality to have. And that kind of mentality, whether it's that relative or Carolyn Bryant or those of the cops who wrongfully accused those young black boys, is a racist mentality. And I say these stories because some of them are obvious and some of them are blatant and some of them are not, but all of it is racism. So why are Christians so afraid to name the sin of racism for what it is. I think over the course of these talks, we've kind of speculated about why that is. Um, and I've also talked to my husband and various friends about it, and we've discussed everything from cancel culture to wanting to reject negative labels as a part of our identity. But I think what re it really boils down to is that if we believe that racism is a sin, then we don't truly believe that we serve a God who forgives. Or if we believe that we serve a God who forgives, we don't count racism as a forgivable sin. But it is, and that is very good. The fact that we can repent is exceptionally good news. And the fact that racism is something that we can be forgiven of, both as individuals and as an entire church, is very good for us. There's hope in that, but there is no hope in an unforgivable sin that no one ever confesses and no one ever repents from. And because of this, so many people don't want to be honest about the fact that racism is a sin that they struggle with. But it's not helpful to hide from the body of Christ. Scripture says, everyone who practices evil hates the light. He does not come near it, for fear his deeds will be exposed. The one who walks in truth comes into the light, so to be clear that his deeds are done in God. We cannot be so afraid of knowing ourselves and our sin that we never fully enter into the light of Christ. But there are so many who have let the sin of racism go unchecked and unrepented and are content with never knowing that death has made a home in their hearts. There are certain thoughts and beliefs that some of you may have that you don't feel comfortable sharing with people of color because they'll think it's offensive or you'll feel misunderstood. So you only talk about it with your white friends or you don't talk about it at all. And that's a huge red flag, not just because you probably shouldn't hold those beliefs, but also because you definitely shouldn't hold them so closely that you can only share them with parts of the body that think and look like you. Let the body of Christ know you, even the parts that you can't recognize in yourself yet. I dare you to ask God to show you the sin in your life, and I dare you to really mean it, because he will. What I want 
is for racist white people to confess their racism and to testify to the mercy of the Lord. That kind of humility and boldness is demonstrated in the story of the prodigal son. And I know we read it already, but let's read it again, because what are you going to do? Get mad at me for reading more scripture. So, <laughs> After the son went out and acted a fool, he came back to his father. And it says, but when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he has been found. And they began to celebrate. And then the other son was feeling some type of way about it. And then, um, I mean, honestly, this is personally where I find myself in the story. Um, and his dad says to him, my son, you are here with me always. Everything that I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice. He says that we must celebrate and rejoice. I think that's so important. Because your brother was dead and he has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. This is what happens when we come back into the fullness of Christ. But we never get to really experience this kind of humble love if we aren't willing to prostrate ourselves in front of the Lord and be confronted with our brokenness. And I love this story because I think it displays beautifully how I feel about the body of Christ. And in a lot of ways, it tells the story of my life with a lot of white Christians. The way I wanted to be in community with people that didn't want to be in community with me. And so in my hurt and my rejection, I grew resentful for the ways that the Lord continued to love people who didn't love me. And when I expressed this to him, he reminded me that when a person humbles themselves in front of me, the very least that I could do is receive them. A contrite heart the Lord will not despise. And so neither can I. We rejoice, the Lord, the body of Christ, and I all rejoice when sons and daughters come home. I know a few black Christians who feel the same, and I think it could actually become extremely helpful if more racist people saw themselves as a prodigal son in this specific context. For those who struggle with racism, no one's asking you to learn how to love people perfectly all by yourselves. You have to be taught how, we all do. But you do have to be humble enough to learn that you've been doing a terrible job in some areas, and a lot of white people have been failing in ways to love their black and brown brothers and sisters. Bring yourself low, and that's what we see from every person in the story of the prodigal son. So it just is the case that we all have work to do. Racism is alive, and honestly, I have no interest in going to great lengths to convince any of you of this. If you don't know, then you don't want to know. And if you do know, it's either because you've seen it, you've participated in the injustice, or you believe the testimonies of your black and brown brothers and sisters. In any case, what we need now, what we've been needing, is for the church to act upon the love of God that we swear by. Our convictions don't mean anything. They don't mean anything if you're not going to actually let them influence the way we live our lives. I'm here to tell you that it doesn't matter what you say you believe if you aren't going to actually allow the Holy Spirit to work through you and lead you to obedience, which is love. Every time you stay silent in situations where you know that people are being racist, whether it's your friends or your family, 
what you're confirming is that racist behavior is permissible and that you cherish that job or that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that money, those connections, more than you cherish what it means to live out your convictions, that you're more concerned with your worldly reputation or what other people think of you than what Jesus has instructed us to do. And if you won't speak up, then you have to repent because every time you stay silent, you are actively, not passively, doing harm to yourself, to the body of Christ, and to your brothers and sisters. The stakes are very high. Don't leave a legacy of bigotry behind you. There are too many people, way too many people that know and will actively acknowledge that racism is not only a sin prevalent in the world, but in our very own churches, and they aren't saying anything or doing anything about it. And since when do we let death just dwell in our midst? What happened to not making any provision for evil? I know this much. The world is going to do what it does. But what's alarming to me is the lack of compassion from the church, the lack of support, the lack of understanding and sympathy, the lack of listening and belief, and the lack of love and respect from my very own brothers and sisters. I consider you really to be brothers and sisters. And this is what I mourn in my quiet time. Because what is at stake? Not only my hurt feelings, um, but what's at stake is the outpouring of the glory of God and our witness. Martin Luther King Jr. writes, there was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. What I feel most concerned about is the church being recognizable as a peculiar and even otherworldly divine institution. That is not what we look like right now. I have never been so desperate to be set apart from the world as I have in these last few years, so much so that I've been so disturbingly discouraged by the church and have wondered, maybe still wondering sometimes, if Jesus is coming back for us. And I have to believe that he is, because he said that he would. But it's this doubt and the church's lack of concern for all of their members that makes me want to distance myself from it. And yet, when we're married, we say, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart, not even ourselves, no matter how much we may want to. I understand that many of you have just begun to take an interest in the injustices of black and brown people, and you're wondering what to say or what to do. I say don't try to figure out how to do what Christ has asked you to do. Don't try to figure out how to be obedient without risking anything. Risk everything. Risk everything for the sake of doing what's right. And just because it's the 21st century doesn't mean that we get to stop being radical. And if I'm being honest, being adamantly and obviously against racism is not that radical. We are trying to live lives that more closely resemble Christ. And it's hard to say we're doing that when we aren't putting anything on the line. Jesus Christ risked his life for the truth, and he lost it. And so the, for, for the sake of our witness and our relationship with Christ and the institution that he married to himself, risk your job and your reputation and your relationships and your life because it's worth it. I wish we didn't have to have these talks. You should know that while I am very eager to do this work, um, it's not fun. 
uh, and it's not without heartbreak and grief and extreme disappointment. My closing remarks are um, just a couple of excerpts from this Timothy Keller book I've been reading called The Meaning of Marriage. And I'm not gonna really do a lot of work to explain the relevance, um, but it should call to mind the parallels between marriage and the church. Keller writes, the point is this, truth and love need to be kept together, but it is very hard. When we are hurt, we use the power of truth without love. The fury and pain of such encounters can lead to the mistake of trying to just love without telling the truth. Though in the end, this does not lead to anyone feeling loved at all. What we need is the two together, intertwined. We need to feel so loved by our partners that when they criticize us, we have the security to admit our faults. Then we can come to know and face who we are and grow. That's what should happen, but it usually doesn't. And then later he writes, truth without love ruins the oneness and love without truth gives the illusion of unity but actually stops the journey of growth. The solution is grace. The experience of Jesus's grace makes it possible to practice two of the most important skills in marriage, forgiveness and repentance. Only if we are very good at forgiving and very good at repenting can truth and love be kept together. There are not a lot of individuals, let alone communities, that are very good at either one of these things. Um, but you can trust that the Wesley will call you to holiness. And there are testimonies in this very room of people who have been healed by what, by what takes place during these race talks. Um, both black people who have felt seen and heard and loved and cared for, and white people who have been challenged in their racist beliefs who have also felt seen and heard and loved and cared for. And so I encourage you to find them and listen to them. Solid up. <laughs>